last week the, the importance of the idea of a, a worldview and uh, that that's not just relegated to church and how you think about God or what you think about the Bible and that, you know, is a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview envelops anything that you touch, anything that you interact with and, um, and, and that's a big deal. So I, I want you to, uh, if you can, uh, a hypothetical scenario that's, that's actually not that far-fetched. It's sort of based on um, a headline that I showed um, earlier. But suppose for a moment um, that you are, you're a surgeon. Congratulations. Um, you've made it through medical school, school. You're a surgeon. And, um, and you need to do an operation on a child. Okay? Now, it doesn't matter what the operation is. It, what matters is that, let's say that you know you know what is medically required for this particular operation to happen. And then suppose that um, one of the child's parents comes in and says, I want you to do this other thing. I want, you to do, I want you to do this while you're doing that, or instead of that. And so what you have now is um, an authority figure over this child's opinion of what you ought to do in this particular situation, right? Now suppose the other parent comes in and says, no, I don't want you to do what they said. I want you to do this instead. So now you have two contradictory opinions, and whether you think it matters whether it's the, the, the dad or the mom in that case, it, it's, it's irrelevant because this goes one step higher. Now suppose the hospital administrator comes in and says, I don't want you to listen to either one of those parents. You need to do what I say. I'm your boss, and if you don't do it, we'll fire you, okay? And then you go, okay, well, I, who do I obey in this situation? Well, you back up one more minute, and then you say, wait a second, there's a law in place, and it says, if I do X thing in this situation that I'll be arrested. So now my boss is telling me to do something that's illegal, but putting my job uh, on the line here, and these parents are telling me to do something altogether different. And then at that moment, they decide to take this to the Supreme Court, okay? So they can adjudicate this case for you, and they hand down even yet another, another idea of what you ought to do. In this particular scenario, what do you do? Who do you listen to? When, when is authority... The, the authority that you ought to obey and when is it the authority that you ought to disobey? And in and, and, and what priority order should you or ought you to put those in? And, uh, and whether or not you have that, you know, already, you know, on a handy-dandy card or something to lay out a flow chart, um, the, the reality is that you would, in any situation, any given situation, you have like a prioritized order of, of authority. And um, whether... Whether or not you've interacted with it at the highest levels, right, in, in terms of the law of the land, um, you, you have um, competing now authorities. And so the question is, at what point does the Christian say, I can disobey this authority in favor of just appealing to the authority of God? And uh, this, is, this is not just a, a question that pops up in Acts today. It's, it's a question that continues now to, to our day. It's, it's, still a, it's still a question because now we have the authorities of the law of the land coming against uh, Peter and John and representing the gospel and the church and the kingdom of God and they're coming up against these authorities. And so as these two things meet, we come to a famous, a famous verse if you've uh, been awake the last two years um, where people will appeal. Well, whether it's right to listen to God or to man, you know, you choose. We're, we're going to listen to God. And that's kind of the carte blanche, I'll do as I please and not listen to you. Now, do you have autonomous freedom 
I don't know. I think that's something that uh, we need to talk about and um, put it within a, a bigger context this morning. And so that's what I want to do for us. So um, Acts at a very, at the most top level, the most superficial level, Acts is the record of the spread of the kingdom, the spread of the church. But underneath that narrative and underneath really the whole, the whole biblical narrative altogether is a, a much the whole narrative of all of creation is, is involving two lines, two, two kinds of people, and those, those things in opposition. And so I, I want to sort out for you this morning um, how these things come together. And um, so if I was just to ask you this morning, and I said, who's in charge? Go ahead. Who's in charge? Jesus. Thank you for the Sunday school answer. I heard Jesus and God, so same thing. Yeah. Um, do you live like, like God is actually in charge? Or maybe you look around and you, and you feel a lot more like other people are in charge of the things that you do. And you say, well, so far as those things don't transgress my conscience on some particular item, then I'm okay with o- obeying that authority. So let me just um, remind you before we get to uh, chapter 4 where we've, we've been at, what Jesus tells the disciples last thing before he ascends to heaven, right? He gives them the mission, tells them what they need to do, and he makes this statement. Jesus said, all authority, where? In heaven and on earth has been what? Okay. Now, this fills a very blanket statement. I mean, you, you, either, have to, you either have to change the meaning of the plain words of this statement or, or contort it in some way that it doesn't mean what it actually says or take it at face value. And I want you to take it at face value. So what is, when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and then he commands them to do something in particular. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That second line right there is, is going to actually come directly into play this morning. I'm, I'm telling you to do this in my name. Go and do this thing. And then he says in 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So there's another law at play here. And Jesus had already opened the disciples' mind to understand all the scripture had to say and the prophets. And it's all been uh, commanded and now laid on the, the disciples here to carry this forward and with this authority. He says, because I have this authority, I'm now charging you with this mission based on this authority. And um, this is something I want to I give us a framework for what's underneath Acts. So let's pray this morning and um, ask the Lord to help us understand and for me to be clear and not fast and not too wordy, okay? So, Father, uh, we want to trust your word this morning and we want to know what's true. Um, Our hearts and our eyes lie to us. Um, The world lies to us. God, I pray this morning that as we come to your word that we would set aside um, whatever preconceived notions we have, whatever filters we've brought to the table, and um, just behold what you would say to us through your word this morning. And I pray that it wouldn't just be, again, knowledge for our head or some permission to rebel, but God, that we would see that um, you've called us to something good and great. We'd find freedom in serving you. And Father, most of all, that you would... um, Make us more like your son through shaping us through the word this morning. So we can't do that to ourselves. So I ask that you would help us by giving us what we need, which is eyes to see the truth of who you are, to behold it, 
ears to hear what's right and good, to filter out what is not, and hearts that are made of flesh to receive what you would say. Pray this for myself and others this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this particular part, but um, I, I think uh, it's important to set for us um, the, the world that you live in is not probably how you think it is. This is like not meant to be overly philosophical, but here's how we generally think of our, our world. The, the world that you experience, walk, talk, breathe, interact with, is a physical world. You think this physical world. And yet, uh, if you're a believer and uh, you, you think that there is a God, um, you believe that there's also a, a spiritual world out there, right? Somewhere. And at times, these things overlap. And hopefully, they do overlap. And you interact with them. And this is all good. But for the most part, there, there's only a, a, an overlap portion. And um, that's, not, that's not the reality that's even painted in, in the very beginning of Scripture. It's, it's not what's laid out as what creation actually is. The picture is actually much more like this. There's a spiritual world with a physical element of it. Okay? And you interact and perceive and touch and walk in a physical side of this world. But you cannot perceive a lot of what is spiritual. Why do I say this? Well, I'll just give you a very quick, succinct argument. I can make more, but I won't. So, um, it's, uh, John, in, in John, uh, as Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, he says, God is spirit, and he must be worshipped in spirit. And, now, take this statement that Jesus makes about what God is. He is spirit, not, not physical, he is spirit. And, before the world is created, God is. In the beginning, God. Okay? But then God creates, and he makes all these physical things. So, we, there's a physical world that inhabits a greater spiritual reality. This is, this is the actual picture of a worldview. Why do, why do I want to set that forth? Because when you and I look around then and we ask, who's in charge? And the more important question, rather than if you can answer that, you know, with the proverbial Sunday school answer, is in charge of what in particular are you referring to? Because the stuff that you interact with and make a measurement of is, is not the greater reality, it's the lesser reality. Now, before you hear me making Gnostic statements about, you know, physical is bad and spiritual is good. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying physical is what you experience, but spiritual is, something, is the greater reality. And uh, that's important because, um, tell me you guys have seen Lion King. The movie Lion King? Okay, if not, uh, I, I, I don't have time to summarize the whole story, but um, there's a king... And he dies, and his son is supposed to take the throne, and he, gets, uh, he, he goes away. He, he leaves the land for quite a long time. And as they're coming back, he's returning to take the throne, and uh, they return to what is a desolate wasteland of what used to be a beautiful, lush landscape, right? And uh, as they're, they're, they're coming, uh, um, Simba and his buddies, right? And uh, Timon, the little, what is he, a lemur or something like that? A meerkat, says, we're going to fight your uncle for this? Right? Because he's looking at this, this supposed like trashy wasteland place and he says, is this, like this is what there is. And, um, and so we kind of look out at the world and, and we perceive it with like the eyes of Timon, right? We're, we're kind of looking at the, the bad, degraded nature of it and we kind of make this assessment that, well, it looks like bad is winning. 
Because in, in that moment, it, it sort of is, right? Scar's kind of taken over. They've overhunted the antelope and so on and so forth. Before I give you Disney theology, the, the point is this. Um, what you're looking at is, is, not the, is not the totality. And so when you make an assessment, something like, well, it doesn't, Jesus said he's in charge, but when I look around, it doesn't look like he's winning. It doesn't seem like he's in charge. It seems a whole lot more like, and then we have other statements where Paul will say something like um, that, that uh, Satan is the, 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 um, the god of this world or the prince of the power of the air. And so we go, well, how do we, how do we measure that against the statement that, that Jesus has all the authority? Like, who's really running the, the show? And so the question is, well, when you say the show, what, what do you mean? It's like, you're looking in the wrong place to, to find the truth. You're, you're only perceiving a very limited scope of the truth. And so you, you stop there and you go, well, it doesn't look like it's happening. And the, the reality is that it is happening, but not by, you're looking in the, in the wrong spot. So with all of that as, as a groundwork this morning, let's look together at um, Acts chapter four. And um, I'm gonna start in verse 11 and I'll read through um, 22 this morning. So, This is um, sort of the end of uh, John, or excuse me, as Peter's speech here. And he's making this final statement before the council that Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's, that's a, an authority statement. That is an exclusive statement. Now, verse 13 now, when they saw the boldness, this is the council, perceiving the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Put, put a little note by that statement right there. And the, the thing that I told you started out with, with the Great Commission, what did Jesus specifically tell the disciples to do? Okay. So here it is, them commanding them to speak no more in this name. And so they call them in and they charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. And when they had threatened, excuse me, threatened them further, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the, because of the people. For all were praising God for what... Um, had happened. For the man on whom the healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Okay? So, um, let me just do like a quick who, who, what, where, when, why of the authority that's present in this particular scenario, right? If you just rewind a few verses, um, the, the Sadducees, of course, are perturbed. And remember, there's the temple guard there and the high priest, and then they confer the high priest's family, and they call everybody in the pool the Sadducees, as well as the Pharisees and the council, which is the Sanhedrin, sort of the ruling class. And these people all have one thing in common. What is it? Well, they're, they're religious people. And so by our measurement, if, uh, if we're kind of like, um, we like to grade on a scale, right? We, we like to say, well, this person's pretty good, or they go to church or whatever. And... Um, 
And so they've all conferred together, and they're representing a, a particular body in this case, and it's, it may not be the one that, that you think it is. So um, they, they, they've all conferred, and they're, they're now interrogating um, Peter and John, and, um, and they're commanding them to do something that is a direct violation of a command that they had received from, from Jesus, right? They're telling them, we don't want you to preach or teach anymore in this name. And they're doing this even in spite of the fact that they're acknowledging that this great sign has been done. And so we kind of get both sides of what happened like in secret in the council as they debated this thing, and then also what they said publicly. And so um, I, this morning we're looking, what's, what is underneath this conflict? It is not just a bunch of religious people debating the new way to, to do church. That's not what's happening here. This is a, an ancient conflict. It's not a new conflict. It's, it's given rise here. It's given visibility to one that started all the way back at the beginning of creation in, in Genesis. And so um, when you and I think of what it means to, to have authority or to be free, um, we think, well, I'm going to assume that you think something like, I can choose for myself what happens. I, I make choices, therefore I'm free. But there is no... There is no absolute freedom, only allegiance. You're, you're, either, you're, going, to, you're going to align with something. And, and the reality that Scripture paints is that there's actually only two, there's only two people to align with. There's only two kinds of people that you can be. Not, there's not this grand spectrum, and some people are over here, and some people are over here. There's only two, two kinds of people. And this is something that... Uh, is bore out, like I said, in Genesis. So man chooses in the garden to, um, to listen to what the serpent says. And, and uh, if you're not familiar, right? So man, uh, man's in the garden. He's, he's given freedom to do everything except for one limited thing, which is to uh, not eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And so what the serpent does is he tempts Eve by saying something. For, for if you do this thing, you're limited. God has not been honest with you and, and you don't have freedom of control. But he, he says, if you do this, God knows that you will be like him, knowing in that moment good and evil. So if I could say knowing a different way for you to help you understand what's actually happening in that moment, it's this defining for yourself what is good and evil. Defining what is right and wrong. That's, what it, that, that's, that's what's underneath that statement, the knowing of good and evil. It's not like, and then all of a sudden they know everything, right? That's, that's not what happens. It is in the moment that they take from this tree and eat of it, they are determining for themselves as they think they can what is, what is right and what's wrong, what is worth trusting God on and what is not. And what's forfeited in this moment is trust and reliance in, in, who, in who God says that, um, that you'll be fruitful, be, be in here, I've given you um, lots of things to do, and they've removed trust in that and put trust in the word of, of the serpent. And so what we find out now, way down the line, is that um, what, what's forfeited is the right of management and dominion over the world. Now, the world is an important statement. I don't just mean the physical creation. It means anything that is under the control of what was originally given to man. Okay? So... Um, there's, there's, only two, there's only two chosen allegiances. Either you are, um, you, you are a child of the promise that's given that even though everything's broken, in, in that moment after sin, God made provision for Adam and Eve and he makes the promise at that point, even in the midst of the curse, that there would be um, a seed from the woman 
who would redeem, he would crush the head of the serpent. But it says there will be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. There's the two lines. There's only two kinds of people. Those that are children of the promise and those that are children of the devil. Now, um, lest you think I've, I've oversimplified all of that, um, I, I want you to, to zoom in on, uh, on the story here today. So um, verse, verse 11 and 12 uh, are just a recap to, to remind you that um, Peter's made an exclusive statement about the position that Jesus' name occupies. And so um, Jesus, Jesus being king is not a, a passing, you know, symbolic idea. Um, when, when, when Jesus goes and he ascends into heaven, it says that he, he goes and he is crowned, he's crowned king. He sits down on the throne, okay? So, so Jesus is ruling. And, uh, and Peter's made, made reference to this already uh, when he, he quotes David's psalm about the, the Lord must reign, he must be seated on the throne until all of his enemies have been made a footstool. And so what, what you need to see here is there's two realities. Yes, Jesus is on the throne. Yes, he's reigning, but there's still enemies. All of them will be subdued. And the last enemy to be subdued is death. So the world that you live in is a world where, where there is, um, there's two lines. There's allegiance to one line that is um, powerful. It's, re- it's real. There are... Um, you know, when you see authority and power and structure around you, um, all of that that comes from um, the dominion that man was given has been, was forfeited over to the devil. And anybody that chooses to belong to that power, that wants to hold that power, wield that power, belongs to him. But anybody that trusts in the promise right now is now um, of the lineage of Christ and of the promise and um are members of a different kingdom. So the kingdom is real. It started in Jesus um, and is continuing now through the expansion of the gospel. And so this, this statement is that there is, it's, it's made in contrast to the assertion that Peter started with, which was that, listen, we, we, we are common ancestors, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the reason why he, he ties it to their family line is because they, they assumed that by blood and by birth, they were children of the promise. But this is something that, um, that John the Baptist had already told them um, they were not, and Jesus himself had spoken against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and called them um, of, the, of their father, the devil. And what, what John the Baptist had uh, told the people that were coming out um, when he was calling them to repentance and they were um, being baptized, he called them a brood of vipers. Do you remember this at all? This is a... Um, it's, 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 it's a statement of surprise. He's not like, um, he's not saying you're bad. Uh, the literal, um, well, he is saying you're bad, but <laughs> let me say that differently. They come to him and they're seeking um, baptism for repentance, which, would have, which signifies something important. They, they understand they're not already saved by birth. So, so in this recognition, he's shocked. He says, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the coming wrath? So this is, this is a statement of you, you children of this, the snake, that's the brood, that's family, okay? So he says, you, 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 you family of the devil, who, who warned you that you needed to um, be baptized for repentance? So in, in the same way, um, when Jesus is having this interaction with the Pharisees, um, they're back and forth, and they're talking about who Jesus' father is, and then um, Jesus makes a statement about how um, my, my, my sheep know me, they hear my voice, and, um, 
but, but you don't know me and you don't hear me because you're not, you're not of my father and you're of your father, the devil. And so he makes the statement that you're children of, of the serpent. So um, there's, there's two lines at play here and they crop up at different times. And when we see things happening in our world, we kind of perceive, um, well, it feels like somebody's holding power and um, if, if we tend to agree with most of the tenets of the way that they're wielding that power, we go, oh, that's a good person. Or we don't like the way that they're wielding that power and we think that it transgresses some aspect of our faith or devotion and so we go, oh, well, that's, you know, unrighteous power. And um, Jesus' statement is this. It's, it's not, <laughs> if it was about the, the kind of power that can be wielded right now in the physical world, he would not have made the statement, my kingdom is not of this world. If, 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 if it was about um, enacting a kingdom of righteous power, uh, <laughs> I'm going to say this super slow so that everybody's with me. If the goal of, of Jesus being on the throne was simply to enact a righteous government over people, he would have taken that throne when they were crowning him king and shouting Hosanna. Because Jesus clearly would wield that kind of kingly power, okay, righteously. But it's not just about that. There was a, there's a redemption factor here that needed to be rectified. This is why Jesus is crucified, to win back what was given up by our father, Adam. So, so you see what's forfeited in Adam and inherited to us is sin. And that had, to be, that had to be rectified. So Jesus being king is, 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 is limiting the scope of what, of what the nature of Jesus' reign is. Wow, I got, I'm so far off of notes here, but it's really important that you grasp this. Um, when, when we talk about um, righteousness and, and how um, important it is that we're, when we say something like, I'm a child of God, it's, it's being included in the line of Jesus, not in the line of Adam. It says, in Romans, the argument that Paul makes is that in Adam all have sinned, but in Christ all have righteousness. So that you, you, if you belong to Christ and his family, you are a children of the promise, redeemed without sin. I've got to move on. I'm sorry. So look at, look at verse 13 with me. Um, I lost my place. Okay, so it says, Now they perceived the boldness of Peter and John. They perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they're astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This is one of my favorite verses in all of um, the New Testament. Um, the, the messengers are bold not just because they're obtuse. Um, they, they're, it's like, you know, a bull in the china shop kind of stupidity, boldness. No, it's, that's not what's the case here. They're bold because of the Holy Spirit um, and because of the extension of the message that they carry. Um, you and I lack boldness and it's generally because of our perception of our ability or the effectiveness of our, of our message. We think that, you know, I, gosh, I don't, I'm not articulate, sort of like Moses, you know, I don't speak well and so I'm, you're not very bold in the presentation of what you believe to be true. And we kind of carry around a defeatist attitude. But what we see here is that they have boldness in spite of the fact that they were uneducated and common men. The word for common um, in the Greek is literally idiota. Okay? Sound like anything to you? <laughs> okay? So, listen. 
they're, they're saying these, these are not learned men. They didn't go to seminary. You don't have to have a Bible degree to know what's true and be bold in the truth. Um, we sort of look in the wrong places for affirmation and that will encourage us in boldness instead of looking to the one place that we, we should get our boldness from, which is the, the, the conviction that this, this, this is true. This is absolute. And so being filled with the Spirit um, helps with that. And they were. It was, they were told that Peter's filled with the Spirit before he says all of this. Um, so there's, there's something that's, that's revealed in their boldness. It's that they didn't make this, um, this plea in particularly an, edu- an educated fashion. It wasn't an academic, well, let me, let me show you the you know, X, Y, and Z of this. It was simply an assertion. This is, this is who God is. This is who Jesus is. And there's salvation in no one else. It's that kind of basic, um, that, that kind of basic assertion that they um, respond to. And they say, well, who would teach with this kind of authority? Because that wasn't the nature of teaching in that day. It was sort of this very Socratic dialogue about, I'll ask you a question and you ask me a question and never really getting to the nub of something, but just stating it with authority is the summation of boldness. And so they see that these guys aren't, uh, you know, the, the sharpest crowns in the box. And so they're like, there's something special about them. And then they come to this realization, these men had been with Jesus. And um, gosh, that's just a challenge for all of us to ask. Is, is that something that somebody would perceive about your life? Is this something, do you present and walk in the truth in such a way that people go, that, that person knows, knows Jesus. They've been with Christ. It's a, it's a question of proximity and proximity is everything. Peter had once failed to even be willing to associate himself, right, with, with somebody who was following Jesus, but in this moment, this is the, the key to them perceiving the, the nature of who they really are. And I think this is a, an important statement to make right here, that it's, it's in the moment of testing, when you think that you are abandoned and you're alone and vulnerable and exposed, that you realize that it's Jesus who is with you. But, it's, but you, like, like Daniel in the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the furnace. It's in the moment of testing and in the moment of trial that you realize the presence. But if you're, if you're fearful and you don't walk in that, you'll never know that reality. And so because in this moment, Jesus told them, don't prepare what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will be with you. It will give you the words. And they walk into it. And because of this, they perceive that these men had not just been with Jesus, but there's something else about them. And so they, they point to the evidence in verses 14 through 16 of what's going on. Let's read it together. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they don't have to really make an argument about Jesus' power and why he has it or any of those things. And when they commanded them to leave the council. So the guy standing with them, they're like, you guys leave for a minute, we need to talk, right? They say, what do, what do we do with these men? This notable sign has been performed through them. It's evident to everyone in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. This is... Um, Harkening back, Jesus had the same interaction with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they demanded a sign. And Jesus said, there, there won't be any other signs from me except for the sign of Jonah. And um, so here they are. They have an undeniable sign again. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter. If even, even if somebody came back from the grave, it would not be enough for them. This man being healed again is not enough. And so um, in verses uh, 17 and 18, we see the response. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, we will warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. 
So they, they come to the resolution in spite of the greater reality, an undeniable reality. They say this is an undeniable reality. In spite of that, we're going to command them to do something that furthers an illusion. We, we've seen the limitation. We've come to the end of the, the reality that we're in control, that we have power. But instead of acknowledging that, they sort of decide to double down on it and command them to not speak or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. Why? So that it may spread no further among the people. Now, this is, uh, this is important because I, I said this last week, that words are powerful. Truth is powerful. Being able to speak and, and having the freedom to do that or compelled speech um, is, is uh, it's paramount. And um, they've come to the point of realizing ultimate truth. So underneath the, underneath the perception that the mayor's in charge or the governor's in charge or the president's in charge or the Supreme Court is in charge, whatever illusion that creates, and a very compelling one it is, because a lot of times they control a lot of the things that you and I interact with. Is this true? Yes. Is this true? Yes. Underneath that, there's a limitation to their power. They can, they can command and demand, but they cannot will or force it from you. This is important. Because underneath this illusion of their power is the reality that, that there is a limitation to their power. So underneath that is absolute truth. That there is, there is a limitation to where power goes and how much of it they have. So um, a question that I often ask just sort of like in my brain or even out loud to my wife is like, what do you suppose is the motivating factor for someone in this scenario, faced with a question of authority or power, why do they seem to double down on what seems to be a, a short game for the cost of the long game? It's like, what, what will be gained in the long term by this person? And the answer is, is, is um, it's less earth-shattering than you would hope it would be. Um, the allure of fake Personal authority overwhelms the reality of surrender to a greater true authority. So let me say this in a different way. The appeal to our hearts that you can rule a very small kingdom or serve in the true kingdom, we, we will generally side with, I don't care how small the kingdom needs to be, let me have some power. So you ask, why do people do this? Why would they double down? There's, that seems to be, even that will hurt them as well. Well, in the interest of having just a little bit of power. And, and this is, it hearkens to the first sin. It is, I want to control for myself and determine for myself um, my reality. In the, in the book, Paradise Lost, um, recounting the fall of um, the angels, this, this statement comes. He says, better to reign in hell than to be a servant in heaven. This is, this is a, a summary or an ism just to give you the, the heart of what I just said. People would rather be a, a, a king in hell. They would rather have some kind of worldly authority and, and control over others than to serve over, or excuse me, under the true king. 
And the allure of that kind of control is overwhelming. And this is the kind of power that, that Satan offers to Jesus in the temptation. When he goes out into the wilderness and, and Satan gives three temptations to Christ. Now, besides the fact that, uh, that um, there's, there's other elements at play here, um, the reality is that the thing that, that Satan actually offered to Jesus as the last thing, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of this world. Is, is that a genuine offer? And the answer is yes. Why? Because it had been given to him. But it's only, it's, 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 it's minuscule and it's short because when man rules over the kingdoms of the world, they die. So that every pursuit of man to have control and power and freedom has actually been a, a, a pursuit of death and it ends in death and results in death. There's a more righteous kind of pursuit and it's one of, of service and um, recognizing true, true authority. So Satan does offer this thing to Jesus over a kingdom that uh, is, is determinedly worldly and it's self-exalting. And so um, to us, when we, are, when we think of what it means to be free and um, we, we generally misperceive it because control in disguise often looks like freedom. What we actually think, if I'm free to do this, it's actually saying, I want, I want power. I want control over the ability to do this or that. And the problem with control is that um, when it's asserted to give freedom, somebody still is in control. Somebody still has power and somebody still has authority. Let me, let me make that a, a bigger and more practical picture for you. To compel freedom for... Um, for us in America, there's laws that are in place and there has to be authority in place to enforce those laws. And so somebody does hold authority to ensure power, or excuse me, to ensure freedom for other people. But when we think about freedom, we, we just generally think, oh, it just means I can, I'm free to make choices. But in general, what we actually are after is the control or the dominion of making our own choices. And um, that's, a deceptive, that's a deceptive problem. Christians are called to see um, beyond what is and recognize the authority that's actually in place. And uh, I can resolve this fairly quickly for you. Um, I wish I had more time. I'll make, this is, uh, I want to sh show you something and then um, explain it and it'll make appearance later. So don't, uh, don't major on this this morning. There are God-ordained spheres of authority in scripture. Things that we, we must or, or God, has, God has asked us to, to obey uh, so long as they do not transgress a direct command, something that he has told us we must do. And um, generally, we find them in three spheres. There's civil, civil authority, which includes things like justice, so the, the punishment of um, criminal activity, wrongdoing, um, governance over us, um, ensuring equal weights and measures, right? Commerce and trade. And um, the second sphere is the home. It's charged with education and welfare um, and uh, includes the, the family and uh, ensuring the well-being of those that are in the home. And then the last one is the church, which has uh, stewardship of God's word and of the two commands, uh, which is baptism and communion and um, discipling the nations. And so uh, in each of these spheres, they overlap, they interact. Um, God has said... In different places, um, you know, I, uh, I I put up I put kings out and I, I put kings in and I and I take them out. The, the kings 
um, are at God's mercy. He controls them. And so far as they um, affirm what is right and good and deter what is evil, they're, they're operating within the sphere of the authority that God has specifically designed them to. And the same thing with the church, same thing with the home. Now, what, what's problematic is when one of these spheres of authority encroaches on another one, right? And, um, and, and so this is the kind of interactions that you and I are, are left to sort out. So now, when the, when the sphere of um, civil governance comes over and says, in the home, you must raise your child this way and not that way. You must educate your child this way and not that way. This, this would be a, literally a direct violation of what God lays out as the authority structure. Okay? And so on into the church. If the government comes and says, church, you must do this and not that, and so far as it is a violation of, of what God has directly commanded, we're told to be obedient to something else. And what is that something else? Christians are not free from all authority. We don't, in the name of I love God, get to be libertarian jerks. Okay? Jesus himself says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Paul says, be subject to the authorities. So far as they're doing what they're intended to do, and they're not a direct violation. Christians live by highest obedience. What does that mean? You, you have an obligation at the highest level to... Um, be under the authority of what is the greatest authority. And that starts at the top with God himself and his word. And this cycles, if I can, hopefully tie this all neatly now in a bow. Um, the fall, if I was going to state it this way to help us all see it the same way, the fall is when man put his trust in the word of the deceiver. The fall, sin, is when man puts his trust in the word of Satan. Okay? But to, to be a children of the promise, to be in the line of God, to be Jesus' family, is to put your trust in the word of God as your highest authority. It is the thing you, you, you trust in, you put your faith in. Are you with that? Does that make sense? Okay, good. So Christians live by the highest obedience of faithfulness to the word. This is Peter's response. Look with me real quick in 19. But Peter and John answer them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. The word, um, the word listen is super important because I don't know what translation you're working with, but it's the same word for obey. So what do you, what do, you do to words? You, you listen to them. So here's, here's what Peter's saying essentially in this moment. We, we obey the word of God. We hear the word of God. We listen to the word of God. That is the highest authority. And your obligation is to that as your highest authority. And so far as some other authority may come into contact with that or interact with that or, or um, counteract that or attempt to overwhelm that, your duty is to say, well, whether it's right to listen to you or to God, you be the judge. But my authority, here it is. We cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. In this moment, Peter's saying, I, I was directly commanded. Christ said, go preach and teach in, in my name. And this is the, the, they command the direct opposite. Do not speak anymore or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. There it is. This is the, the two um, wheels at play. So we must be obedient to the highest authority. 
I have so much more, but I don't have time. <laughs> so um, we have a freedom. We have a freedom of highest obedience. And um, when, we, when we make statements like our celebration of, of what it means to be free in Christ, um, that does not negate the reality that we are, we are free from, that, that statement is about a freedom from sin and death, freedom from the tyranny of Satan, freedom from being servants to the world and the powers of this world. But you are now a servant of God. That's why Paul always introduces himself in all of his letters. He says, I'm, I'm a doulos, that's a slave. I'm a slave for Christ. We, we, serve, we serve God. We do not become God's. So our highest obedience is to, to, to serve God in his word and his bidding. And that's what advances the kingdom and grows um, is through the advancement of, of the reign of his word, the, the control, the dominion of God's word. And so far as that's successful, enemies will be defeated under that. And then the reality of what Jesus says will become more and more apparent, ultimately culminating in Jesus' return where he has the whole kingdom, delivers it to the Father, and we all live happily ever after, right? <laughs> so let me pray for us.